0: and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast, bringing you true crime from around the world. Hi, I'm your host Cambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another True Crime Podcast. Hi Islanders, how are you? I hope you're all well. Jeez, last episode was shocking. Tons and tons of feedback on that one. All of it, all of it in support for the vigilante justice dished out to Ken McElroy. But this episode is going to be very different. We go back in time to the 70s punk scene and how a good little boy would grow up to be a punk rocker. And alleged murderer. There's plenty of references tonight. So, so tonight's references are The Observer, The Guardian, The Smoking Gun.com, Sid and Nancy LoveKills.blogspot.com, OutlawJimmy.com, Outlaw Sex Pistols The New York Police Department, and Philadelphia Daily News. Oh, and also a photo by Slava Gorodovoy. Gorodovoy. Now, that photo, that will appear on my YouTube one, of course, not on this one, the audio version. Okay. So, I wanted to bring this case to you for a while now, as I think it's just one of those cases that involves a bit of celebrities, some drugs, the fast lifestyle, and the time period as well, the 70s, which for me is when I grew up. And I know you don't think I'm that old, but <laughs> it's when I grow up. And it's like that's probably why I like my car, which was built in 1974. And really, I think the 70s, it's often overshadowed by the 60s. I mean, the 80s. The clothes that people were wearing in the 80s, absolutely shocking. And the 70s, it sort of doesn't get the same rap as the 60s, you know. But I think it was pretty good time. Now, the star of today's show is punk rocker Sid Vicious, and what a name. I remember as a kid hearing the name and finding out he belonged to a punk rock band called The Sex Pistols, along with lead singer Johnny Rotten. Now, that was certainly enough to grab anyone's attention, and they would not only grab my attention, but they also grab the attention of the police, all those fathers out there, and of course, the censors. But before we dive into all that good stuff, let's find out who this Sid Vicious character was, where he came from. And uh, also, I'm going to refer to Sid as Sid throughout the episode, even before he was called Sid, just to avoid confusion. And, uh, you know, I tend to confuse people a little bit sometimes. So, born Simon John Ritchie on the 10th of May, nineteen seventy, uh, <laughs> 1957, at Lewisham Hospital to John George Ritchie and his mother, Anne Beverly. Now, it's often said that his name was John Simon Ritchie, but I'm going off his birth certificate, so there you go. Um, a lot of people will say, oh no, it's not Simon John, it's John Simon. Well, just go and have a look at his birth certificate. What his mum would call him or whatever he liked as his first name before. I don't know. But that's his birth certificate. Anne and John, they'd met. That's her husband. Had met while Anne was in the army. And oh, well, they didn't get married, sorry. So it wasn't her husband anyway. Let's start that again. Anne and John had met while Anne was in the army. And John was a guardsman at Buckingham Palace. The family were to move to a Spanish, the Spanish island of Ibiza and Sid and Anne did go there while John was supposed to follow later. Now, he didn't in the end and Anne would go on to meet and marry Christopher Beverly in 1965. Now, sadly, uh, Christopher died of cancer only six months later. Now, being a single mum for so long, the bond between Sid and his mum was very strong. They were described More as friends than mother and child. And this is probably due to the fact that Anne was, she was getting a little bit older. But I think she still wanted to cling onto her youth. Which, you know, that's fair enough. Now, the problem is Anne would become a drug addict shooting cheap speed rather than, say, heroin. She would shoot it up in front of Sid as he grew up. And so this kind of lifestyle became pretty much normal to him. By the age of 16, Sid was living with his mum in a flat in Hackney, which is just north of London. Here he would meet John Lydon at Hackney Technical College. They would end up squatting together in London, and it's here that Sid got his name Sid Vicious. After Lydon's pet hamster named Sid, it it bit him one day. Now, after being bitten, Sid said, "'Sid's really vicious!' And somehow, Simon John Ritchie got the name Sid Vicious. I hope you understand all that. Anyway, now, when you do a little bit of research into Sid and the Sex Pistols, a lot of names pop up that you may know, such as Chrissy Hine, Jar Wobble, Susie Sue from Susie and the Banshees, Adam Ant, and Clash co-founder Keith Levine. Now, they all hung out with each other to a certain degree all before any of them became famous. Now, I used to hang out in Newtown and got to know a few musicians that went on to become big names. So if you are young and you're into music, get out there, get to know everyone. You never know where it's going to take it, take you. I mean, look at me. <laughs> I host a podcast. Anyway, let's get back to London in the 70s. John Lydon. He's now Johnny Rotten, and he became lead singer of a band which would become the Sex Pistols. There was a clothing shop called Sex at 430 Kings Road, Chelsea, southwest of London. Now, this was co-owned by a guy called Malcolm McLaren and a lady, Vivian Westwood, and had undergone several iterations since 1971. Now, the clothes at the shop were meant to shock with bondage gear and T-shirts with taboo prints. So, things like naked naked women and people sticking their fingers up, all that sort of stuff. Here, Sid and Johnny would hang out and get to know Malcolm McLaren. Glenn Mat- Matlock, the original bass player for the Sex Pistols, worked at the shop as a cashier. Johnny Rotten, guitarist Steve Jones and drummer Paul Cook, they all shopped and hung out there. And with Malcolm McLaren as manager, the Sex Pistols were formed in 1975. Now, the Pistols would go on to personify British punk rock in the 1970s. The Sex Pistols would play their first ever live show at St. Martin's College of Art, London on November 6, 1975. Now, at this stage, Sid, and Sid, he's not part of the Sex Pistols, but he would make sure he went to every gig. Now, these gigs would be wild with a punk crown, jammed into smoke-filled venues, mosh-pitting away. The sight of Johnny Rotten with those big, wide, piercing, crazy eyes yelling into the microphone, jumping around all over the stage while the crowd smashed themselves into a drug, and alcohol fueled frenzy. It must have been a thing to experience. Frightening but exhilarating at the same time. Now, it's said that Sid invented, or at least made popular, the pogo stick dancing style where you would jump up and down on the spot like a pogo stick, inevitably bouncing (laughs) out of control and into each other. Now Sid would have the ability, really good ability to get into trouble. Apparently he had been considered as lead singer for The Damned, but had not been told of the date of the audition and missed out to Dave Dave Varnian. Now, At the two-day 100 Club Punk special event where Sid made his debut as Susie and the Banshees drummer, he threw a glass at this Dave guy, which smashed, and it partially blinded a girl in the eye. Now, he was arrested and taken downtown. Sid would often get into fights and often pick on the wrong guy. And he'd get beaten up, but that didn't stop him. So, the Sex Pistols released their first single, Anarchy in the UK, and it was a hit. A big hit. Even though it would end up being banned on most radio stations. The Sex Pistols, (laughs) they would get then lose several record contracts. But they kept playing all over the UK and into France. And they would end up touring throughout Europe and, of course, the US. But this isn't a Sex Pistols history lesson. But let's get back to Sid Vicious. In early 1977, Glenn Matlock, the Pistols' bass guitarist, he leaves the band. Now, Johnny Rotten, he says that they kicked him out because he liked the Beatles. And Glenn said he left because of Johnny's ego getting too big and because of some of the lyrics of the songs he had to play. Now, if you know some of the lyrics that, they, that are in their songs, you can understand what he's talking about. Whatever the truth, Sid Vicious would become the Pistols' new bass player to booing with the band at the screen on the green in Islington on April the 3rd. Now, some say he couldn't play at all, where others say that at first he couldn't play, but after a night binging speed and practising the bass throughout the night, he became an acceptable player. Now, not that he would be playing on many of the studio tracks, but his presence on stage rivaled that of the crazy, wide-eyed Johnny Rotten. Sid would at times be covered in blood from slashing himself, one time slashing a bottle and carving the words, give me a fix, into his chest. In 1977, the other main character of this crazy story appears, Nancy Laura Laura Spungen, Born February the 27th, 1958, in Philadelphia, USA, to a middle-class Jewish family. Now, as a toddler, she was a screamer. As a student, she was highly intelligent and was able to skip third grade. She was violent towards her little sister, but protective of her little brother. She was attention-seeking and out of control, and by 14, she'd already tried to kill herself by slitting her wrists. She would get into uni but a few months later was busted for weed and stolen property. By 17 she had left home and went to New York where she was a stripper and a sex worker. She had a plan though to go to London, find a musician to hook up with. Now the story I heard was that she ended up at a party with Johnny Rotten and Sid Vicious and at the end of the night they were all crashed out on the floor, Nancy between Sid and Johnny. She rolled over to see if Johnny was interested and when he wasn't, she rolled over to Sid and he was and they would become a couple. Nancy Spungen would soon become what Yoko Ono was to the Beatles or Courtney Love was to Nirvana. Sid was the only one who wanted her around. Everyone else wished she would just fuck off. Now Sid was heavily into drugs but it was usually speed or prescription pills but Nancy liked heroin And soon Sid would too. The rest of the band and manager Malcolm McLaren thought that Sid was a handful before he met Nancy. But now he was totally uncontrollable. Now, they wanted her gone, like McLaren and the rest of the band members. But what can you do? Abduct her and try to force her onto a plane back to the States? Well, they did try that but she was able to escape from the car on the way to the airport, falling out, <laughs> out of the car as it's going along in front of a passing policeman. So that didn't work. In October of 1977, never mind the bollocks, here's the Sex Pistols, the band's first album was released and it would go to number one in the UK as double platinum and it would actually go platinum in the US. Now get this, and this is just crazy. On Christmas Day 1977, the band were asked to play play a gig for the children of Huddersfield in West Yorkshire. Now, it was a benefit gig for the children of the striking firefighters at the Ivanhoe's nightclub. Now, back then in the 70s, there was all this industrial turmoil. So, there were the striking firefighters. And so, they, they just did this benefit gig right for the kids. <laughs> just... I got so much more over this. Now, being Christmas Day, the band weren't allowed to play that day. It was against the law and you couldn't buy a beer as all the pubs were shut. But the band had been driving up to London and they couldn't get a gig as most places by the time they got there they banned them or they couldn't get a hotel whatever. Then they were contacted by these striking firefighters of Huddersfield and asked if they could play a daytime matinee gig for the kids and a normal nighttime gig. Now, they had nothing to do and nowhere to go, if you get my drift, so they accepted. The dance floor of the Ivanhoe was decked out with a table full of food and a giant cake with Sex Pistols written on it. Now, all the kids were given Sex Pistols T-shirts, badges and records. It was a fun and festive occasion with Johnny Rotten and Sid Vicious dancing with the kids to the disco music of the day, like Boney M's Dada, daddy, cool, daddy, Daddy Koo, Daddy, Daddy Koo. I haven't sung for a while. <laughs> and yes, sir, I can boogie, da-da-da-da, disco song, that sort of stuff. They were having a ball and it was filmed as well. That's how come I know what they were playing. Search for Nevermind the Baubles Christmas 1977 with the Sex Pistols. I will have a link in my YouTube version of this podcast, so <laughs> when I film that later tonight or tomorrow, you can have a look at that. It's a bit slow at the start, right? So this goes for an hour, this, this doco, but about halfway through it picks up and it's really good where it starts to show the daytime and nighttime gigs. Now, it's so funny... Seeing these seven and eight-year-old kids, they're all wearing Sex pistol shirts and badges, dancing around with Sid and Johnny, and they are absolutely having the best time of their lives. Also, it, it shows the human side of these punk rockers. They are, they're just helping out the community and bringing to the kids a very special and memorable Christmas. Now, Huddersfield, like I said at the time, it was really fucked up. Now, people don't like me saying things like it was a shithole, but pretty much it was a shithole. So it gave these little kiddies just a little something amongst all the poverty and shit going on at the time. Now, when the band played their set, Johnny changed all the swear words from the songs to something more age-appropriate. So he wasn't just going out there swearing and carrying on. He did the right thing. Now, imagine the meeting that went on deciding the entertainment for a bunch of seven- and eight-year-olds. Now, I have a suggestion. Maybe we should get the Sex Pistols to play for the kiddies. I mean, (laughs) just what the fuck? Now, the nighttime gig would be the last time the Pistols performed live in the UK with their current lineup. Now, Malcolm McLaren, he was desperately trying to keep the band together, and a tour of the US was organized. To maybe try to get Cedar away from the UK. Maybe he might straighten up a bit. On Thursday, the fifth of January nineteen seventy eight, the Sex Pistols played at the Great Southeast Music Hall and Emporium in Atlanta. Now they also had gigs booked at Memphis, San Antonio, Baton Rouge, Dallas, Tulsa, and their final concert at Winterland San Francisco on the fourteenth of january nineteen seventy eight. So in just under two weeks, they played, I think, most of these. However, I'm not sure exactly how many they did perform at. Now, tensions were high between Malcolm McLaren, Johnny Rotten and Sid Vicious. The band would split up with Johnny and McLaren returning to the UK while Sid and Nancy went to to New York and stayed at the Chelsea Hotel, 222 West 23rd Street, Chelsea, New York. Google that. Actually, Sid had taken so many pills on the flight to New York that he was unconscious on arrival and was taken to hospital. Anyway, Sid and Nancy originally had room 230 at the Chelsea Hotel until one day the mattress just caught alight and then they were moved to room 100. Now, residents of the hotel would tell of loud arguments and noise coming from their room at all hours. Nancy was often seen half naked running up and down the hallways. Sid and Nancy were the neighbours from hell, fucked up with drugs and partying all the time. They were either fighting with or loving each other in a very toxic and violent relationship. Now, Nancy became Sid's manager and he teamed up with ex-Pistols bass player Glenn Matlock and other musicians. Now, most of the gigs they did were at Max's at Kansas City and he did draw large crowds and made good money. The money flowing in was plenty to keep the drugs and partying going. But all this drug fueled chaos would eventually spiral out of control. On the 12th of October 1978, 20-year-old Nancy Spungin would be found in a pool of blood, wearing just her bra and panties on the floor of the bathroom of Room 11. She had a knife in her stomach and she was dead. Sid would tell police that he woke up and saw her lying dead in the bathroom but he was so out of it that he couldn't remember what happened. He had no idea if he stabbed her or not. Now, there'd been lots of people in and out of Room 100 the night before, so he wasn't sure if he'd done it or not. It was his knife which police described as a Jaguar Wilderness K-11 with a 5-inch blade. It would be found also to have Sid and Nancy's fingerprints on it. Now Sid was arrested for second degree murder and Malcolm McLaren contacted to try to get Sid bail. Now bail was raised and Sid was released the next day. Now Sid was devastated. A few days later he would try to kill himself by slitting his wrists and was hospitalized where he tried to jump out of the window screaming he wanted to be with Nancy. Over the next couple of months, Sid descended further into depression, taking whatever drugs he could to kill the pain of losing Nancy. Heroin, though, was now his drug of choice. In a November 1978 interview, he said of Nancy's death that it was meant to happen and that Nancy always said she would died before she was 21. On the 8th or 9th of December, Sib was arrested for assaulting Todd Smith, the brother of Patty Smith, a singer at the Hurrah nightclub in New York. He would be sent to Rikers Island Prison to dry out for 55 days and undergo methadone treatment. On the 1st of February 1979, Sib was released on bail and as you can imagine, after 55 days without heroin, he was desperate for a fix. He was met by his mother and friend English photographer Peter Kodick. Now the only thing on Sid's mind was getting a fix. He'd already arranged for his mother to get him some smack before she picked him up and now he was desperate to get to the hotel room and shoot up. Once at the hotel he got the spoon and liner, dropped some heroin into the spoon with some water, put a bit of cotton wool in it as a filter and drew it up into the syringe. He had his tourniquet strapped to his arm And he shot it up. On releasing the tourniquet, he was immediately disappointed. The smack was low-grade shit. And even after 55 days clean, he needed something better. Now, Peter knew where he could get some better shit. And so Sid told him to hurry up that he needed a hit. And yes, it was his mother gladly buying heroin for her son... Now, she'd shot up drugs in front of Sid so many times as he grew up. It was just a natural progression that she would soothe her son's cravings by getting him some smack. Like I said before, they didn't have a normal mother-son relationship. They were more like good friends. Anyway, there was a release party organized for Sid that night at Sid's new girlfriend, Michelle Robeson's place at 63 Bank Street in New York City. Now Sid's hanging out for Peter to get back with a heroine. However, he seems upbeat and confident he will be acquitted on the murder charges and he's looking forward to starting a new band and playing music again. Now Sid's jumping around the place, playing air guitar. He looks like he's starting to come out of his depression over Nancy's death. But, as psychiatrist Steve Tetch mentioned on the final 24 hours documentary, His upbeat mood may have been because he's finally decided to kill himself and the stress and anxiety from that decision is now gone, which does make a little bit of sense. Now, when Peter arrives with the smack, this is around midnight, he and Sid go into the bedroom and Sid sets himself up just like before. Peter does warn him that it's really strong and to take it easy. Sid, though, is just desperate to shoot up. Now, this time after releasing the tourniquet, tourniquet sid gets a blast yes it's much better quality and when it's this st- strong after 55 days straight on methadone treatment at rikers it's so easy to overdo it and overdose now sid seems okay for about 10 or 15 minutes and then he staggers into the bathroom and he's throwing up Now Annie's mum, she doesn't really take much notice as she's seen Sid do this plenty of times before. Next, Sid stumbles into the bedroom and collapses. He's starting to turn blue. Now Peter rushes in and tries to keep him awake, slapping his face and walking him around the room. They get him some tea. Now eventually Sid responds and starts to come out of it. Now, Anne was then asked if they should take him to the hospital, but she refused, saying that the media will make a big deal out of it and he'll end up back in Rikers Island. Now, Sid does recover, but most of the people at the party, they decide this party's over and they go home. Now, Sid starts to pester Peter for more. Now, Peter, he's got it, but he doesn't let on how much he's got. And Sid knows he's got something. So he gives him a tiny little bit more, saying, that's it, it's finished. Even though he's just seen Sid almost OD and die. Now, Peter then gets gives the rest of the heroin to Sid's mum, Anne, and tells her, hey, he doesn't know this is this exists, keep it away from him. Now, later, Sid's in bed with new girlfriend, Michelle Robeson, and he asks her if she'll shoot him up once more as he's got the shakes and he can't do it himself. Now, she refuses. She leaves the bedroom and she goes out to talk with his mum. And she then goes into the bedroom, closes the door, and she shoots up Sid. Now, this would be the straw that breaks the camel's back. In the early hours of the 2nd of February 1979, Sid Vicious would be dead at just 21 years of age. His death would be put down to acute intravenous narcotism or overdose of heroin. And in later years, Anne would admit that she overdosed him on purpose because she knew her son probably couldn't face life in prison and he always said he wanted to be with Nancy. Now, she claims to have found a note in his jacket pocket which read, we had a death pact. And I have to keep my half of the bargain. Please bury me next to my baby. Bury me in my leather jacket, jeans, and motorcycle boots. Goodbye. Now, I do have a photo of that, and again, I'll stick it on my YouTube channel. Now, that's pretty pathetic. She's certainly not Mum of the Year. Now, with the death of Sid, the case was also closed on the murder of Nancy Spongin. Now, Sid wanted to be buried, like I said, with his leather jacket on next to Nancy, but her parents refused. Now, Sid was cremated at the Garden State Crematorium, Bergen, New Jersey, on the 7th of February and against her parents' wishes and scattered Sid's ashes all over Nancy's grave. So, Islanders, what a live fast, die young story that was. Sid and Nancy were so young when they died. Sid, even though he lived a chaotic life, he achieved quite a bit, travelling the world, playing in a punk rock band that had number one hits, the only job I could see he ever had. Nancy, well she wasn't stupid, she was able to get herself from the US to England and snatch herself a sex pistol. Both Sid and Nancy in another parallel universe may have really gone far. Sadly, for their love of drugs, particularly heroin, and their crazy lifestyle, Well, that was the end of them. And Beverly, Sid's mum, well, she was a junkie herself and I know some will email me about using that term, but no sugarcoating what she was. She used drugs openly in front of Sid all the time from when he was growing up and even bought drugs for him. Ultimately, it would be her that would administer his final fix, knowingly causing an overdose and the death for her only child and she would die just like a son with an overdose at her home in hastings road swaddling coat on the 6th of september 1996 okay so that's that's it for this week the end of another episode and i can tell you it was one of the more enjoyable to research Listening to a lot of the music from the Sex Pistols and some of the videos on YouTube. And I do recommend you check out the Never Mind the Baubles one. Plus have a look at the last 24 hours doco on Sid as well. Okay, to the Patreon shoutouts and thanks to all my past, present and new patrons. Your financial support actually does make quite a difference as True Crime Island is commercial free. And it's commercial free for all, so no annoying ads for undies, food delivery and any of that sort of shit. And all my content is available for everyone, no matter if you can donate or not. I'll be doing the, the, I did send out the Patreon awards this week. Sorry, it was a little bit late in the month. And I've got the new ones coming up for November as well. Thanks to Holly and Rick Smith and to Lisa King as well. Your contribution is very much appreciated. If you want to help out the island, you can go to patreon.com forward slash true crime island. If you don't like the monthly thing, you can also send beer money to PayPal just like Dan the man did this week. Thanks so much, Dan. I hope one day I get to shout you a beer back. PayPal link is Island.com or paypal.me forward slash true crime island. Now, everybody, remember, support yourself before you support the island. I know times are tough at the moment. I've got merch at Threadless and Redbubble now. I've updated my website, truecrimeisland.com, and there's a contact and merch link for Threadless and Redbubble. I've got a new T-shirt coming out, so I'll let you know about that in the future. There's also a link on my website to Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also support the show by rating and reviewing, also by sharing it with your friends and family. Please feel free to check out my YouTube channel and subscribe. Please comment, subscribe, and get notifications. Just hit the little bell. I've also got a link for this on my website. If you want to contact me, the best way is cambo at truecrimeisland.com. All the other ways, it's quite hard to, for me to get back to you. Okay, big shout out to Mia. Hope all those post holes are deep. Dig deep. Very once, they say. Okay, that's about it. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Bom Vaca Langa!